So, I just want to clarify a couple of things um, before we, uh, a couple of things about the instructions and then um, move on. Um, first is regard to walking meditation. Um, I mean, it's important to understand walking is a posture, walk, uh, just like sitting is a posture, or standing or lying down is a posture. Um, it's not in itself a meditation. We can um, do most meditations uh, in the walking posture, practice most meditations in the walking posture. So it's just a posture which can be um, used to do, uh, to take the meditation in any direction we want, really, usually. So in the context of imaginal practice and, and this uh, course, uh, we could kind of divide the walking in two in terms of possibilities there <clears throat> and walk with the, uh, do the walking meditation um, with the intention of the samadhi with regards to cultivating that well-being, that harmonization and uh, ease in the energy body and the sensitivity to the energy body. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we can also walk um, during the imaginal practice. So the imaginal practice taking place in the walking posture. Um, with with the samadhi in the walking posture, you probably some of you would be familiar with this already. Some of you really won't. So um, you can start by standing, and uh, same as as when we're sitting, um, expand the awareness, feel the whole energy body, tune into that. And if um, there is some well-being or pleasantness or nice energy somewhere, just stay with that. Um, tune to it, open to it, feel it. In all the ways that we've discussed, you're welcome to use images if they help open that, or a bit of breath work, or whatever it is, or just tuning to the energy body, everything that we talked about. And when that feels a little bit established, that uh, nice energy or well-being or pleasantness, um, just linger with it and then begin to walk. But instead of paying attention to the soles of your feet or the sensations of moving the uh, legs, uh, throughout the legs or whatever it is, um, or walking in a much wider space that includes the sky, instead of those options, we're actually walking in the sort of bubble or space of the energy body, tuned to the, the feeling, the texture, the vibration, the tone of that whole space, just as if you were sitting, but now now one is walking. I'm tuning to that. Um, it, particularly if there's a sense of some degree of well-being or comfort or ease or even pleasure there, that's what we're paying attention to. Same thing, walking between two points, stopping at any time you want in the middle of the path, stopping for as long as you want at the end, um, just having that as a priority, that um, nourishing of the well-being in the energy body and with the sensitivity of, uh, to the energy body. Uh, you might need to walk uh, a little faster to help you tune in that way, or a little slower, or a lot slower. You might need to stop a lot. It doesn't matter. You're really just taking the same practice, the same samadhi direction of practice, and applying it in a different posture. And as always, being responsive, being playful, being creative, um, and seeing, seeing what helps.
So that would be the samadhi practice when we're walking, with the energy body when we're walking. And then it's quite possible to um, to do imaginal practice when you're walking. Uh, very, very possible. You know, in classical metta practice, uh, when when I would give walking instructions, you can imagine the person that you're giving metta to at the end of your walking path, so that you're walking towards them, um, radiating metta towards them in a very lovely way, and then you reach them at the end, and they magically appear at the other end, and then you turn around and do the same thing, walk towards this person that you're um, radiating well wishing towards. Or you can imagine them walking by your side, and both of you are perhaps in a, in, a, in a bubble of well-wishing, of metta, of light, whatever, healing. Many possibilities there. Uh, so those kinds of possibilities, I suppose, are possible um, doing walking meditation with more, more open imaginal practice. Um, but actually, the, you will find, as you play with this, there are all kinds of possibilities and ways that the surroundings can be taken in, which we'll come back to. Um, many, many possibilities. Uh, more than one might think before one actually gets into the walking posture with imaginal practice and plays with it a little bit. And just as with the... Um, walking samadhi practice, you can stop at any time, you can stop for as long as you want, um, and stand, and if that's helpful at any any point, and, and vary the pace, or find the pace for any session that feels most conducive to working with that image, yeah. So again, very playful, very uh, responsive. Okay, so that was the first thing I wanted to clarify. The second thing, um, I feel like I probably... Uh, express something in an unhelpful way about how long we spend with images. And I said two minutes is loads. Um, what I really meant to say, what I should have said, was two minutes may be enough. Um, it's it's very possible to spend a whole session with an image or, you know, a really long time, an hour or something like that with one image and it's maybe evolving slowly or going through different phases or something. The, the key point really is not that this amount of time or that amount of time, it's just is it still helpful? So if, if I'm spending a long time with an image, does it still feel full of resonances for the soul? Does, is there still the uh, soulfulness there through that? And of course, the mind wanders, you bring it back, the soulfulness might dim and then come back a little bit. But so it's not so much a, um, a, a time guideline as, as, as always, where, where tuning into what's happening, sensitive to what's happening, just sensitive to whether the soulfulness is there and whether it feels helpful. And you can spend as long or as short um, as feels helpful and soulful. Okay, so we uh, mentioned the other day, we began to get into a little, little more detail in the instructions um, different aspects and dimensions of the ways we can interact with images, the ways we relate to images and imaginal figures. And we uh, brought up the possibility of a, a shift in attitude, uh, asking, sort of usually implicitly, not necessarily a literal question, but asking, what do you want of the imaginal figure? Not what can you give me, but what do you want? So turning things around in the relationship, um, not necessarily an actual question, or it could be, but more a, a sense, sensing and intuiting. It's really a shift, as I said, in attitude. 
with the imaginal figure. So I just want to restate that again and say a little bit more about that um, as we go on through the retreat. Um, what do you want? And maybe what this imaginal figure, what this daemon wants is to be expressed in some way, probably in my life. Um, so maybe that's what it wants. But again, not so literal. It's, its expression may not just be a, 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 a concrete, literalized mimicry of what the image is. And it may be that what the imaginal figure wants is just to be seen. It actually is not asking for any expression or doing something, anything different. It just wants to be seen, to be acknowledged, and to be honored. And the key word there is the honoring. There's a sense this is something that needs honoring. And we get the sense that's what it wants. And maybe what it wants is really to look at you in a certain way. Um, it's re what's really important w with some imaginal figures or instances with imaginal figures is how they see you, how, how they, this image sees me, how uh, it looks at me, this um, imaginal figure or animal or whatever it is. How they respond and act towards me, that's actually what's important. And because and, one of the possibilities within that of how they see me and how they act towards me is many, many um, uh, ways in which healing can happen and at many different levels. I could give so many examples of this, the healing possibilities, uh, the different healing possibilities of working with images. I think I already talked about the, um, the uh, retreatant who was meditating and had the liver condition and was... Uh, in, in some pain and low energy with her liver condition and then this magnificent lion came towards her she'd already familiar with the lion from before and started licking her liver and, and the healing that came out of that and how that moved then into the samadhi as the energy body changed over 20 minutes or so and then recently someone was sharing a little bit how they were beginning in their life to dare to look more closely at a really quite painful aspect of uh, their relationship with their father when they were much younger and how there was uh, really some sexual inappropriateness and uh, there from the father and all the pain that that brought up and the confusion and the difficulty there and opening to that, daring to open to that, and the courage that that took. And the uh, another image that she'd had before quite regularly of this phoenix, I think I mentioned it already, and I, I will mention it again in another context as well, this phoenix came as huge, beautiful, uh, immensely strong, but very compassionate phoenix uh, bird came and... Um, enfolded her completely in its in its huge wings, so actually was I think behind her and brought its wings to cover her whole body, particularly her breasts, um, and so much healing in that. And interesting to me that that even in the gesture of and we talked I asked her about this and in the gesture of doing that very healing, very protective in the enfolding. 
um, of the wings of this phoenix. But also, it, the image itself and that gesture had a kind of um, eroticism to it, the, the way it covered her breasts. And so, in a way, there was a healing of um, er, er, the erotics there as well. Um, it was erotic, but it had so much love and healing with it that it actually healed something, or began to heal uh, something around the sexuality. There's so many possibilities. I remember um, certainly more than a year ago, I think, um, beautiful image that really touched me. Um, I'll say a little bit about it, um, just because there's a few other aspects that are instructive. Um, I, I was feeling not well physically, uh, tum tummy ache and stuff. And um, suddenly in the meditation, this huge Godzilla-like creature, uh, seemed to be made of metal parts though, um, appeared with red blazing eyes and raging. But so, but then, then very suddenly that also kind of collapsed or shattered or exploded and morphed into this um, giant anthropomorphic figure, so this giant human-like figure, but it seemed also to be made of metal. Then very quickly that collapsed, shattered, and shrunk into a fox, which at first seemed like it was made of metal, but then shrugged off the metal exterior to become more um, f fleshy and furry and natural fox fox animal. And this fox uh, is is a fugitive. He travels alone, and he avoids contact. He's he hides, um, and. Uh, so I feel myself into his body at times. I feel what it feels like to be him. And I get a sense of him, both from within and also looking at him. Uh, and I sense his wisdom. There's something about this fox. He's very wise and he knows things. He knows esoteric things and uh, philosophical things. Um, but he's very tentative about who he uh, comes close to, um, who he lets himself come close to. Uh, there's something he will only let himself come close if he senses that you really want to learn. And there's something about this fox that's so uh, beautiful. I, I bow to him in, in imaginally in the meditation. My heart feels drawn to bow and to make anjali with, with my hands in that gesture of bowing. There's a real sense of reverence and, and softness and I, I, I feel tearful um, in the meditation as I'm doing this. And I get a sense of him and I see him on his travels and um, uh, and he will come, this fox, to a circle of people around a fire, for instance, and give of his wisdom. He's open to doing that, but otherwise he avoids, he avoids contact, he hides, he is furtive and fugitive. And it might even be that someone is trying to catch him or destroy him. So I'm getting the sense of this fox and the beauty of, of it and the reverence in, in the relationship there. And then he stands on my tummy and I, uh, I'm still in the sitting posture in the meditation, my physical body, but imag imaginally I lie down. And uh, so that his paws uh, and his paws, uh, they bear the, the touch of his wanderings and the paws uh, press in onto my belly 
certain points as if they're almost acupressure points in my tummy and on my back uh, for healing. And it feels very, very healing. There's something, uh, again, I feel the energy harmonize and, and heal feels very lovely there. So lots of dimensions to that kind of image. So there can be, in this example, like a lot of healing, as I said, go on there um, in, in, in images. Um, many different dimensions. And also, as we mentioned already, love. Um, in the relationship with the uh, imaginal figure, particularly how they look at me or how I look at them, love may be the important thing. Uh, so I uh, think I told the, the image of the white horse and, and the beautiful love uh, between us, really. And then that image of the jazz musician Eric Dolphy um, as I was doing the walking meditation and how the whole thing there really seemed about my gratitude and my love, a little bit about his blessing me, but really was about my love and my gratitude and how so much that love is part of the soul making. And again, to quote that beautiful poem of Mary Oliver's from her collection, West Wind, is a, is a poem about, um, it's a prose poem actually, about um, about Peter Bysshe Shelley, the poet who, who drowned uh, very young. And she says, uh, to quote, I, she says, um, she's writing about him, and she says, I love this poet, which means nothing here or there, but it's like a garden in my heart. Uh, so the love um, that we have for these imaginal figures or, some, or that they have for us, it, it, it means nothing to anyone, uh, perhaps. My love of Eric Dolphy, might say, who, who cares? Um, but something, it does something. It's a garden in my heart. In other words, it's fertile in my heart and in my soul. It is soul-making, the love there. And it, that figure and the love in relationship to it is soul-making. And as we said, uh, when I talked about another musician, Keith Jarrett, that love itself, the eros there, um, wants to um, penetrate further and open up the image of the beloved so that it does open the image and give other dimensions and range to the image and more of a sense of sacredness. And that opening of the range and opening of the sense of sacredness um, fertilizes just the image but also fertilizes then it it asks for an expansion of the conceptual framework to include those other dimensions and then the eros may love more etc so there's a real fertilizing process going on through the love and through the eros and again i've said this before but it's so important when when the love is there in the image either way or both ways from me towards the image from the image towards me we're really interested in the particular quality of that love. So love has uh, such a range of possibilities for us as human beings. There's so many um, flavors and styles and dimensions and qualities to the different kinds of love that are possible for us. So it's not always just simple universal matter or just compassion. It may be, um, but they may be, as for instance in, in this image of Eric Dolphy and the love there, it's very, very particular quality. Um, so really to, to tune in and notice the particular quality of love that's present with any imaginal interaction. And all this about the healing and uh, the, the love is just part of uh, this question, how, how, 
How am I drawn or asked to interact with this image? What Sometimes we feel um, almost pulled or led in or invited in a certain into a certain mode of interacting. So maybe a verbal dialogue, it may be something else entirely, maybe more um, a, a sexual interaction, that there is a lovemaking. You know, there's all kinds of possibilities, all kinds. Uh, but this whole, um, you know, when we when we say, um, as I said at some, in, in the earlier instructions, um, to include an awareness of the thoughts that come up in relation to this image and the conceptual frameworks that are operating, and then we add this dimension of a kind of attitude or stance in relationship to the image of what do you want. So all of these things, um, these aspects of, of the um relationship with the image, they bring up the question, or they imply the question uh, of the relationship, what, the exact relationship, or what is the relationship between this image and my life? Uh, and this is um, an interesting question, to say the least. It's, it's potentially quite tricky, um, but it's interesting. Um, It's not something we want to think too much about or kind of interpret, you know, think and form an interpretation. It's more something we'll, we'll kind of get glimpses of or a feeling for, in, in, intuitive awareness of that a relationship is there and what is the relationship or how are things mirroring, etc. So sometimes an image will give advice, um, sometimes, to... Um, to a person about their life. So I actually remember um, quite some years ago now, um, uh, an image, actually the image is not that important, there were black and white figures and a sort of rit ritual thing going on with these figures. And um, this is years ago before I had done that much imaginal practice. And I remember at some point being drawn to ask um, these sort of priest-like figures, if, if I should go ahead and, and write this book about emptiness that people had been um, asking me to write, a few people, and and the answer was, was clearly yes, um, that uh, even if it was, um, you, you know, didn't have much, uh, you know, wasn't popular, etc., didn't sell very well, it would still be a worthwhile thing. But that, uh, that kind of thing I think is quite rare where an image actually gives advice um, and not only is it rare I, th I think again my leaning um, or my fa favored leaning as, as is obvious by now on this retreat is, is that it would be more interesting um, rather than getting advice the soul making and the soulfulness is is the emphasis and that that makes it more interesting the whole relationship with the image of the whole imaginal practice rather than me just seeking out these images to get advice about um, what I should do etc which can become too much um, possibly can become too much of an ego thing uh, trying to be successful at this and that, whatever. Um, more interesting, more um, radical will be just to prioritize the soul making, and the soul making also in, 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 in um, with respect to the relationship of the image and my life. 
And what what helps that to be soul making, to have this soul making um, stance or or su- support the soul making there? It's this sense of um, life and images m- mirroring each other, but particularly my life mirroring these images and these imaginal figures, or echoing um, these imaginal figures. My life, myself, my journey, the soul events of my life. Um, having their origins and their roots in some way in these imaginal figures, in these archetypal dimensions, these more divine um, dimensions of, of being, if you like. And that kind of loose conceptual framework, that kind of attitude is, is much more um, supportive and um, opening um, for the soul-making and the soulfulness. So... Clearly, anyone playing with um, imaginal practice, um, even a little bit, will notice that um, images reflect life at times, or something happens in in one's life, uh, or some thread in one's life, and it's expressed in the images. And that that's obvious; one can see that. But more interesting to me is this this other direction of. Um, Flow, if you like, causality may be too strong a word. Um, images kind of finding their expression in life. Life, as I said, mirroring or echoing or having its origins or roots in the imaginal figures. This to me is more interesting, more radical and more conducive, excuse me, and supportive of soul making. So, yes, life leads to images, let's say, but more interesting, images um, have their fruits in life or are expressed in my life. Actually, even if um, it seems clear that it's, it's an event in life or a feeling in life that has given rise to this image, the image then, practiced within the right way, the image is, or, or at least it leads to, a way of looking at life, a certain relationship with life. So even if it seems obvious that the image um, was spawned or had its roots, um, was born out of some event in my life and kind of mirrors that, that way around, relating to it as image um, then, then shapes uh, and constellates uh, a rich and potentially soul-making way of looking and relating to l- l- that part of life, my whole life, or that event, or that aspect of myself, or whatever. So just the image in the way that we're talking about it turns into something that is soul-making, always, whatever it seems like its origins are. Very simply, uh, the question always is, does it enhance the soulfulness? Does it nourish and deepen and widen and um, ignite and enrich uh, the, the sense of soulfulness? Does is there soul making here? Not so much what the origins are, but so I can see it either way. But if it does seem to come out of life, um, rather the image mirrors life rather than the other way around, which would be the more sort of an unusual way of looking at it. If it does seem the image comes out of life, then picking it up in the right way, practicing it in the right way, that does it bring soul, soulfulness? Does it enhance the soulfulness? Does it nourish that soulfulness? So sometimes all that, the soulfulness with respect to an image, is, is very much helped by 
the awareness of a kind of loose connection um, with life or mirroring um, of my life uh, sorry the Im- that my life mirrors the image or the other way around sometimes it's really helped sort of in the awareness in the meditative awareness one's vague, you know aware of the of the connections it makes it more soulful more poignant sometimes and sometimes not actually um, and we don't need to look for it so this is a curious thing Mo- I don't know most images perhaps really have a connection with the life we see our life mirroring these images or vice versa um, and there's a lot of soul making in that connection or in the awareness of that connection a lot of um, emotional resonances ideational resonances soul resonances and sometimes not and we don't need to look for it so as an example of one that isn't, I remember um, uh, a year and a half or so ago, um, I can't remember exactly, uh, suddenly in the, in the meditation, uh, uh, a white, uh, there, uh, there was a, a pond or lake um, in, in moonlight, a very tranquil, almost otherworldly scene, um, very, very beautiful um, Scene and out of the um, trees and the foliage right by the shore of this lake stepped a, a white unicorn suddenly and was there by this very still um, moonlight moonlit lake and standing in in the moonlight um, at the shore um, deep sense of silence um, to this unicorn and a very beautiful creature and again there's love from uh, from him or her, I actually couldn't tell the gender. Um, love from uh, from the unicorn to me, and also from me to this unicorn. And again, a sense of devotion. So I'm not even quite sure um, what exactly I was devoted to, and it brought a stillness in, into my whole being. Um, and this unicorn, she was uh, solitary, a solitary creature, very unafraid. There was no danger here. Very still. Um, but the whole image really seemed to be in another world, a world somehow unconnected uh, with the ups and downs and the vicissitudes of, of this world and this life. Uh, something very unperturbed and unconcerned, very, very touching. And yet there was nothing about this that had any relationship with the events of this life, really. So sometimes... A lot of images do have that relationship with life or they um, our life mirrors an image and sometimes not. So to be sensitive to that in the practice. Uh, when the relationship, when there is a mirroring or an echoing um, uh, of our life, you know, again, it's not... Uh, we want to make sure that we have a non-literalistic understanding of that relationship. So if there's this soldier or warrior image, I, I know it doesn't mean uh, to, to join the army or harm anyone in any way, or the wanderer image, I know it doesn't mean that, we've been into this. Um, or another example, I remember um, quite some time ago, uh, an image of a painter's studio, an artist's studio, and I, I couldn't... Uh, it seemed to have a lot of potency to it, this image, but I couldn't, I was trying to understand it a little bit too literalistically um, at first in the meditation. And then I began to be with it in a couple of different sessions, and I realized it was really about the space. It was really 
there was a connection in terms of my sense of um, my my work and and um, the importance of uh, creative output and and being being creative, which is something that feels very important to me. Letting that flow and to produce creatively, which is also something that feels deep deep in my soul, very important. Um, but not to take it literally to become a painter. I would, you know, I'm far from that or higher a place. But it was about the, the space, about um, uh, the enclosing walls, protecting this space uh, and this space of creativity and all the kind of attitudes of the artist that go with that and all the, um, if you like, the sacred space of the artist. And not wanting to translate that to literally, it wasn't the, then that I needed to go and find some place like that, which I which I don't have, and I didn't do that. Um, but it can be there as an image, and fertile and fertilizing as an image in the psyche, the space, the artist studio. So, so the, there's a relationship there. But it does not have to be literalistic or concretely act, acted out usually. Now, you've noticed, I know uh, for sure, that as one is practicing with images, all kinds of doubts can come up. Just like when one is practicing any other meditation, doubt is a hindrance, one of the five hindrances classically, and uh, can come up and there can be confusion or sometimes even paralysis uh, with regards to, to the practice. So very often, not... Uh, the question, am I doing this right or am I doing it wrong? And and so, this is so common, not just for imaginal practice, but for all meditation. The, the, the question is operating there, um, often consciously, but sometimes unconsciously. Am I doing this right? And the fear of doing it wrong. Um, so rather... Uh, so that question is there and it's dominating and it's pressuring things, this getting it right or getting it wrong and the fear there. Um, rather than what I really so much want to emphasize, this attitude um, of, of experimentation and playfulness. Um, uh, so letting go of right and wrong and just playing and having fun and daring to experiment and asking instead... Does this feel helpful? That's a very different question. Am I doing this right or am I doing it wrong? Does this, what I'm doing right now, how I'm relating to this image, how I'm holding the attention, what I'm paying attention to, does it feel helpful? And now we're adding, does it, does it feel soulful? Is there soulfulness coming out of that with, with this? So these questions are much more useful questions and um, much more, again, fertile questions. They open the avenues rather than locking them down. And again, a person might have a doubt. Am, am I making this up? Especially, I mean, with imaginal practice, it happens all the time. Am I making this up? So this is really important and different people who work with images in psychotherapy or, or other modalities um, have different opinions on this. I would like to say that actually it's okay if an idea comes into the mind in, in imaginal practice or an impulse to make something happen with an image or to introduce some, some other element or some other figure into an image or change it even perhaps, perhaps um, at times. Um, not a problem if I'm making up always, and this is a rule of thumb now, let's make it into, into a, gui a guiding rule. Always the question is, 
Is this, does this feel like it's, it's nourishing and opening and um, deepening and enriching the soulfulness right now? So the soulfulness and the, uh, becomes the indicator, as I said, the navigator of, of our practice in the moment. Not so much it's always wrong to make things up or I should always make things it, That doesn't matter. We, 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 can, we don't need to get snagged with that question. Oh, well, that's the ego doing that. Just uh, use the, if you like, the fruit, um, the result in the moment, how it feels, and use the soulfulness as, as an indicator, as a navigator that we're on the right track. So there's a responsiveness there. If it feels soulful, and I've made this thing happen in the image, no problem, it feels soulful. If I haven't, and it doesn't, you know, uh, it's tuning into that, the soulfulness aspect, and, and the, the resonances there, and letting that guide us, trusting that. So again, with the doubt, some person might say they're with an image and this is too weird or this is too dark or whatever this image. And the mind comes in with its views and we talked about this in the opening talk, it's limited range of what's okay or what kind of images are acceptable or what's emotionally okay in the range or in terms of the self view. This is too weird. So often a person will think that in imaginal practice or too dark. Um, or conversely, actually, a person says, this isn't weird enough. This should be weirder. I've heard all these stories. People say this and that happens, or Rob said this, you know, whatever. Um, or generally speaking, meditating and the thought or, or the inclination, something else should be happening. Um, so this is very, very common. But again, well, could we um, rather be more responsive and let other other factors, other aspects of what's going on be our guides, namely the energy body and the way that responds when an image is, is right and, and soulful, as, as I outlined the other day um, in the instructions and all the different cues and clues we can pick up on in the energy body. And the sense of soulfulness and the resonances and the beauty and the depth and the meaningfulness and the all, all that that we outlined. So letting the energy body and the sense of soulfulness um, guide us rather than the minds um, often too uh, tight or, or locked in views. And the energy body and the, soul, the sense of soulfulness, the, the, what's going on there might be quite subtle, might not be that far out or dramatic, those effects there, but we can really um, use them as indicators, as part of the whole sensitivity of uh, developing the sensitivity of the instrument. And again, in terms of doubts, the person says, well, I don't have images, or I don't get very many images, or whatever. But remember, we've been through this, so this is, this is repetition at this point, but remember, an image is not necessarily visual, and there's a whole range of possibilities there in terms of um, the sense modalities operating, etc. You know, this I don't have images, uh, which, which I've heard a few times um, from people over the years, um, again to repeat uh, the, the views that we have meaning the conceptual frameworks that we entertain or that we're holding will um, allow or support um, more or less images depending on what the conceptual framework is so some conceptual frameworks just won't um, allow and support um, a fertile enough soil in the psyche for images to arise because 
wrapped up in the view and the conceptual framework is a is a is um, a dismissal or a denigration um, ontologically or otherwise of, of images. And so that's very connected with just with attitudes in general. Um, Im, Im, images are daydreams, they're papancha, they're worthless. Um, it's not being mindful. It, then when, when there's an image or a fantasy that's not being in touch with reality, all these kind of attitudes and views um, are really, really prevalent, as, as we said in the opening talk. Um, and they will have an effect on what then arises in the psyche. They will... Um, uh, constrain uh, the, uh, the, uh, the possibility of images arising. And of course, um, especially if you come through the insight meditation tradition as I do, um, one has practiced, I had practiced for years um, uh, diligently discarding images when they came up for the most part and returning to the breath or returning to so-called bare attention or whatever with all the attitudes um, implied in that being reinforced and as a practice um, just reinforcing this discarding and returning to something that seemed or was deemed to be more, quote, real. And so that, uh, the attitudes, the views, and the practice over years will, uh, as I said, constrain and decrease the um, the flow of images and the arising and the availability of images. So just to be aware of that if it still feels like, oh, I really don't have images in, in that sense. Um, we have trained ourselves out of that through practice and view, but we can do the, we can open that door again. We can train um, uh, in, in, we can train the imagination, if you like, and train the sensitivity and the opening and the tuning to the imaginal through practice and through opening up the view, as we've talked about. But anyway, anyway, in terms of how much actually people uh, have arising for them images in the sense of imaginal objects or figures, whatever sense modality that's coming in, anyway, that's not the deepest objective as I would see it of the retreat. Um, the thing that I'm most interested in is um, opening up, as I said, and sensitizing to uh, a whole different way of sensing life, opening up the perception of this here and now, of life, of self, of other, of world. That, to me, is is uh, the objective that I'm most deeply interested in for all this. And so whether or not I have lots of actual imaginal objects, imaginal figures arising, is secondary. It may be that uh, that's part of my trajectory. Maybe that's not so much part of my trajectory. But there's a, there's another objective that's more important. I would say. And again, just just saying more about the whole the whole question about doubt and, and navigating all this. Um, so often, so often with imaginal practice, an image that is initially scary arises and becomes over time, sometimes very quickly and sometimes really over quite a while, um, months or even in some, in some cases years, but usually because before they've been introduced to uh, all the things that we're talking about, um, becomes a helpful image. What started scary um, or was deemed initially felt to be a scary image becomes helpful. 
the person was telling me um, some time ago about this black, what she called the black hag, um, this old woman uh, dressed in, in black, sort of witch-like, etc., and seemed very dark, the, the, the black clothes, etc., and the, the, the ugly old woman features, etc., and, and kind of uh, had this, what seemed to be an aura of wickedness, but actually, no, 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 no. Um, it, uh, the, this image, um, with spending more time, trusting a little bit, became a really, really uh, helpful figure, deeply fertile in, in the psyche and the soul, and um, deeply wise as well. The style of love and uh, admonition, if you like, from the Black Hag was, um, was not cute and cuddly and soft. She, she retained her kind of character, but there was absolute love in it and lots of trust. So it's a, again, a certain particular quality or flavor of the love that flowed through there. But no, nothing scary in that, nothing harmful in that, just that the mind immediately picked up on it in a certain way and assumed that this was scary. So often what seems scary at first actually turns out to be something very helpful. And this is important. Can we trust the benevolence of these imaginal figures? Or is it possible even to play with trusting, just enter into trusting for, for a period, a portion of a meditation, maybe just a few minutes? Can I play with um, even imagining that they're benevolent, trusting that there's something there? Because that trust... Um, becomes a significant factor in the whole mix of imaginal practice. The trust itself will affect the way of looking. In the moment that there's trust, we're looking and relating differently. In the moment when there isn't trust, we're looking and relating differently than that. And the, and the way of looking always affects the images. Just like uh, any, any other perception, the way of looking always affects, always makes a difference. So you can see this in nightmares, for instance. I don't know if ever in a nightmare, perhaps you're chased by a monster in a nightmare. And something changes in the way that you see the monster. And there's a little bit more of a kinder view of the monster. And, and guess what? The monster changes in the nightmare. The more fear I have of the monster, the less trust, the more I run away from it, the more um, oppressive and, and scary looking uh, it becomes, the more it uh, feels dangerous. And, and when that fear subsides, for whatever reason, it, it, if you've ever experienced this in a nightmare, um, the whole monster uh, uh, as, a, as an apparition changes as well. So the image is affected by the way of looking, and we can sometimes play with the trust. Trusting there's a treasure there. Trusting there's something beautiful and right and necessary there. Uh, so we can, that's something that we can, again, this is part of the idos, the idea that we entertain, trusting it, trusting that there's a treasure there. Even if it looks at first a little bit scary. This is, this is a, uh, an important point. And eventually, uh, through practice with images and, and the kind of conceptual frameworks that we're talking about, eventually, um, this might actually mature, this attitude and this vision of images. It might even mature to a place where we trust the archetypal necessity, even at the center of 
so-called pathological behavior of behavior that is quite painful in our lives, maybe even addiction or addictive inclinations or pathological inclinations. It can even mature to a place where we trust that even somewhere in the middle of that there's an archetypal necessity. So this is this is tricky, and, and it's, it's a fine line here. So I need to see, in that case, image as image. What happens often, it might be that what's happening there is that image that's operating archetypally is, is seen uh, in this addiction or whatever it is, is seen um, uh, not as image, is, is taken too con- concretely. So if I, if I do identify or get in touch with an archetypal necessity at the center of this <clears throat> pathological behavior or whatever it is, I really need to see image as image. But one gets a sense that in some of the kind of real knots of our life or places uh, where there is addiction or, or this or that and there's suffering and pathological behavior, it's not something else can be at the center there, at the root there. It's not sometimes people, uh, we can be a little oversimplistic in our psychology and say uh, always it's because what one is seeking is love. And one is going about it the wrong way. Everyone wants love and and people look for it in, in mistaken places. And that's what's driving addiction and that's what drives this um, uh, dukkha-making behavior or whatever it is or this inclination. Or we, we, we tend to, again, be too simple psychologically and say it's always down to the seeking of pleasure and the seeking to run away um, from unpleasant feelings and that's what's driving the addiction it's an escape mechanism I mean that may be going on but it may not be the whole um, the whole of what's driving this thing or at the center of it so I feel sometimes <clears throat> we want to have very simple um, psychologies and apply them universally everyone wants love and that's what's driving it they're just seeking love in this mistaken way um, or seeking happiness, or seeking pleasure, or fleeing unpleasantness, the unpleasant emotions, or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe for sure, but maybe there's more and richer and a deeper kind of treasure or archetypal necessity which needs a different relationship to it. It needs honoring, but also seeing its image. We could say much more about us. I, I won't say more now about that. And sometimes, as well, still on on the on the subjects of, of doubt and trust, sometimes um, we have an image and it just seems weird or it seems just insignificant. I can't really see the point of this image. Doesn't, um, but it may over time gradually um, come to feel more significant and come to affect one's life long term. This image that at first did not seem very significant. Maybe um, there is uh, something coming through this image, or our ability to let what comes through, or what wants to come through, uh, one's daemon, etc., is coming, but it's coming slowly, gradually, in a way that's not obvious at first. There's an open question in terms of imaginal practice, in terms of 
what we might call pacing with images. Now, I've touched on this before, and I want to repeat it because it's quite an important one. Um, so I got this from Thomas More, the, uh, the, the, the contemporary Thomas More, the psychologist. Uh, he talked about listening to music. And when we really love a piece of music... Um, you, 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 we listen to it again and again. No one says, oh, I've heard, I've heard that piece. I heard it once. I, d- I wouldn't listen to it again. If you love it, you want to listen it, to it again and again. Compared to, say, um, um, a, a, a book or, um, or a Dharma talk or whatever that explains things in more rational terms and takes you, and once I've understood it, I've understood it. I don't need to listen to it again. Um, so... Um, an image is more like music that we love um, versus a piece of information or something instructive or an explanation. So sometimes with um, Dharma talks uh, that I've given, people say to me or, or write or something and say, I, I listened to that, those Dharma talks or this Dharma talk over and over and over. And, and most often the reason is because they're, they're so packed with information and explanation and, and stuff like that that a person needs to listen to really absorb all that information. But very occasionally or a few times someone has said, there's about, there's, when you tell that little story or that that image that you related or, or whatever and they're talking about like a 10 second fragment or two minutes or something and they say I just loop it round and round and round and I don't know what it is about that but I just keep listening to that thing over and over in that tiny little section then it's that what they're doing then is that that stretch of that talk whatever it is half a minute or whatever has become alive for them as an image and just as a person who really loves um, music will listen to the same, sometimes the same little passage again, again, if you're really a musician into that sort of thing, sometimes just the same piece of music. And there's something that's become soulfully fertile and not just informationally fertile there. So similarly with images, um, do I just want to move on to the next image or do I want to recall an image deliberately and, and marinate with it again, tune to it again, linger with it, just like we would um, with a piece of music, be in that soul space, um, that uh, soul world of that image, tuning and marinating and lingering in the energies, the emotions, the soulfulness, the resonances of that image. So there's an open question um, when to bring back an image and be with it more. Maybe it evolves a little bit, maybe not, doesn't need to. And when um, to be, you know, move on and be more open. So I don't think there's a right and a wrong here. I'm just flagging it as an element, as a sort of open question that's part of our pacing. And sometimes um, we find that we deliberately bring a helpful image in and that um, doesn't stay as that image. It it fertilizes and spawns other images that seem not that connected. So someone was saying they were having a hard time with with a situation in their life, very complex and sort of sitting in meditation and feeling kind of weighed down by this um, whole complex knot of a situation that was going on, didn't really, couldn't see a way forward with it and, and felt, yeah, burdened by the whole thing, um, beaten down almost by it. And then they brought deliberately the image of uh, their niece and nephew to mind, um, who they absolutely delighted in and loved very much. 
and that image didn't stay, the love arose, and they felt the love for the niece and nephew and the delight there, and then suddenly um, the image changed and became the image of, of a dancer. Um, a woman dancing, powerful in her body, poised and confident and dancing with great energy and passion and, and bravura and, and skill and uh, tuned to this image of the dancer, which seemed to have nothing much directly in relation to the situation or in relation to the niece and nephew. Um, but the whole situation felt uh, that they were in their life. They, they began to feel very different about they, they Somehow, through the image of this dancer, um, they could kind of get a bit more, not only space, but a, a different perspective on what was going on. So the poet W.B. W.B. Yeats, uh, some, some in the poem, wrote, wrote uh, about the images that yet fresh images beget. The images that yet fresh images beget. So sometimes there's an image and it, it gives birth, if you like to, or catalyzes another image that can be very helpful. <clears throat> Someone a while ago uh, talked to me or asked me, I was talking about imaginal practice, and they really picked up on this idea of what we, what we said before, that we can relate to images in a way that we're basically using them as some kind of uh, you know, part of a self-help uh, uh, journey or, or, or practice or path, um, or, which is fine, completely fine. But they said, how, how can I steer it beyond that sort of self-help um, attitude and relationship? So to say a bit about that here, because really what we're talking about this morning is, is more about, as I said, interacting with images, relating to them, and navigating with images. So how to go beyond the sort of self-help relationship? Well, it's really playing with this idea of um, perhaps serving. Uh, playing with the idea of serving this angel or this daemon or this imaginal figure um, in the meditation playing with that as an idea um, that I'm serving it rather than it's serving me um, and that's very improvised it may one, one wants to tune in to what that feels like and it may involve even a devotional sense um, but there's no right or wrong way of doing that we really can improvise with that Related to that is, is all the kind of conceptual ideas that we've, we've talked about that support um, or nourish um, that soulfulness and soul making. So it's all of that included. But really just taking the time as well with those images that feel deep, that feel important, that it, we have the sense with them that my life is mirroring them somehow. Those are the images that will really... Um, at, along with the right attitude towards them and playing with that attitude and this idea of serving, etc., will really turn around into this other more radical relationship. So serving the angel, the demon, my life mirroring it, but again, not literal. Um, it's not necessarily so um, concretized or literalized that would make me quite nervous, I think. Um, that kind of too tight and too literalized attitude. We're talking again about poetic images, a poetic sensibility, which can be yet very, very powerful without being literal. 
and at times, I, you know, I've mentioned this this sense that we can have of the kind of non-temporal dimension of images, the timelessness or the eternality that images uh, seem to have. Um, that's part of their poetic um, nature. It's part of their iconic nature, and part of what gives them this power that they somehow exist beyond time, uh, and that. Tuning into that can be really, really helpful in, in this sense of um, opening up a more radical um, relationship with them. Again, just to touch on something I think I threw out earlier, and just to restate it and amplify just a tiny bit. I um, talked about, I can't remember if I use these words, but the sort of... Um, <clears throat> octave of, of an image or the, the, the register of an image if we use words from uh, musical metaphors. Um, so for example, what do I mean by that? I mean um, the uh, degree of solidity or substantiality that the image seems to have. Um, so for example, one might have, let's say, an erotic image and it looks like and maybe feels like it feels very, um, if you like, solid, earthy, fleshy. It's maybe got a more raunchy kind of erotic character or feel to the whole thing. That's one end of the spectrum, if you like, of this um, re register of pictures. That's one octave. Or one might have, in terms of, <clears throat> let's say, events that take place or characters um, in the image, it might be a very similar kind of thing, but the whole thing appears more etheric, if you like, more insubstantial. One could say it's happening at a higher pitch. Um, and it might be very erotic without being so... Uh, obviously sexual, for instance. Um, so there's not a right or wrong here. That's really, really important. It's not like higher is better. I mean, I think some people might say that. Some people might say lower is better in this, in terms of this register of the images or the solidity um, of the image or the substantiality of the image. I, I would say it's it's all good. What you'll notice, definitely, again, you can't get away from this dependent arising, so that dependent on the mind state um, the, is, is the sense of the, the perception of substantiality of the image. In other words, when we're in a very, very insubstantial uh, a state that's perceiving a lot of insubstantiality in the body and in everything else, when perhaps deep emptiness or deep samadhi, those kind of states, the deep metta, um, that that mind state will tend to um, constellate images or the images that are constellated within that mind state, within that state of consciousness, will tend to be insubstantial. It's dependent arising, dependent on the, on the mind state, the state of consciousness. And it's malleable. You'll find that you can um, actually transpose an image to another register, another octave, the same image at another octave, or similar enough, or it changes a bit at another octave. Um, so yes, it's dependent on the mindset, and yes, it's malleable, and, if it's not too much contradiction, one can also um, sense at times that this particular image, this is the octave that it belongs in. It belongs in the more earthy, substantial, solid range, or it belongs in this more higher, um, eth etheric uh, range. So, so one can also, that's part of the tuning and the sensitivity, is actually feeling, again, what feels... Let's, let's say right, um, without making that too heavy a word. Um, 
So certainly with an image, certainly with the image or the sense of the self and the body, that can also have this um, uh, range of, of register, of octaves there. And also, and very importantly, we're going to get more into this, of the surroundings. In other words, the sense of, of things and surroundings or the image sense of the surroundings of the world um, can be very solid and earthy and very insubstantial. So I'm just pointing that out and see, again, seeing if you can notice and learn and play and, and tune and become sensitive there. Okay, last thing. Um, all images, are, or probably most images, are, are portable, so to speak. We can transport them to other situations, other postures, other interactions in the day. So a person, this is really quite a while ago, was telling me how they were beginning to really enjoy playing with in, um, bringing in, incorporating the image of Kuan Yin um, into their um, meditations and particularly into their um, way they were doing metta and compassion meditations. Um, and this this sense of Kuan Yin as, as a, a living deity, if you like, a living imaginal figure, um, also had a complexity of character. She she had different flavors. Sometimes she was very playful. Sometimes she was very tender. Sometimes she was like a, a kind of pixie, um, etc. There was a whole range there of different flavors to her and therefore to the um, expression um, in, in practice, um, to her personality, to the kind of love that came out at different times in these different flavors, flavors. And so he was enjoying all that and imagining her at times, this is where the portability comes in, actually imagining her in others. So looking at his friend or talking with a work colleague and actually imagining that Kuan Yin was in in that person or expressing through that person, that person was Kuan Yin. Um, and depending on the flavor of Kuan Yin that was manifesting at that time, a particular personality or expression, the quality of love, he would um, uh, feel devoted to them um, uh, more generally, but also in different ways, depending on the flavor. The relationship changed um, anyway, just by seeing them as Kuan Yin, feeling and imagining and sensing them as Kuan Yin. And then within that, there was also quite a range of how that felt. So this is very similar, if you know about Mother Teresa and her practice, working with, um, in her words, the poorest of the poor and people suffering from leprosy and all kinds of other um, injuries and sicknesses, etc., and seeing her practice was basically to see everyone as as Christ. So she sees the person, and at the same time she sees Christ within them. Uh, and that was that was her her main practice, in fact, and that was what enabled her to do the amazing work that she did. Um, an image that comes up a lot for me in all kinds of different ways is the image of the jazz musician. I actually was a jazz musician um, years ago, and uh, the image can come up many different ways. <clears throat> and again, it's, it's something that's portable sometimes, um, but its portability is quite subtle. So, you know, one might think with the mind, it's like, oh, jazz musician, that means improvising. So it just means improvise through the day in your work and in your interactions without having a sort of plan of what to do. Um, but 
it does mean that, or this image can be um, translated in that way, but also in, in a lot more subtle ways, which maybe on this retreat I'll, I'll go into as an example of something. But the way these images can spill over can be... Uh, m- um, there's there's a real range there. There's a, there's a whole variety, and it can be very very subtle. So I'm not even sure I could properly articulate the way the jazz musician image then might come in when I'm talking to someone or listening to them. It's not just about improvise improvisation. It's really quite subtle in terms of the whole sensibility of self and other and situation, etc. So. Um, Self-image, other image, self-fantasy, other fantasy, um, and and they are portable. And then we also talked about um, fantasy of the Dharma, and are we aware of what the fantasy is? That's an optional. You can uh, an optional strand, if you like. You can investigate that if you want, or ponder it, or reflect on it, or tune into it. What is the fantasy? of the dharma that you've been entertaining. But basically, to say again, where there is love, where there is a sense of meaningfulness, of beauty, of depth, there you will find fantasy image mythos operating. Where there is love, meaningfulness, beauty, depth, soulfulness, etc., there there is a fantasy and image operating. The question is, what is it? So... We can, we can begin to look at this and begin to make it portable, the image, the fantasies of self, the image, the fantasies of other, play with them, and also um, of the world and the cosmos. And so I'm going to um, say more about this as we go on. The image, imaginal practice in relationship to the world. But you might notice already that images you're working with begin to spread out um, and and sort of suffuse or um, transform a little bit or transubstantiate, um, but they spread out to the wider world, the surroundings, the environment, and even the sense of the whole cosmos. So it, just to say for now, it's really okay if that happens. It's part of the portability. It's part of the work with images. I would expect it to happen. Let it happen. Play with it a little bit, sensitize it a little bit, and, and hopefully we're going to elaborate more about that in the next few days. Okay, that's enough for, for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.